If you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. We're going to start uh, a new book. Looking forward to going through as much as we can through the book of James and God's providence. Um, I had the blessing of uh, talking to a uh, brother, uh, and uh, he said, it's like when you're exercising. Now, most often when someone says that, I don't stop them and tell them, I can't relate to you at all. Now, I'm kind of joking there. In, 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 in uh, all seriousness, I do exercise a little bit. I enjoy walking, and I do actually try to push myself and go as fast as I can. And Sometimes I might throw a quick sprint across the street. Um, but those who are serious about exercising, they have something in common. They have a common goal. No, well, they don't all have the, the, the same goal, but what they have in common is a goal. There's something that they're trying to achieve by pushing their body. For some of them, it is going a certain distance. For some of them, it is going that distance or doing a certain skill in a certain amount of time. Or trying to get their body to look a certain way. Or trying to, uh, they, 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 they had a test result from the doctor that wasn't good and they're trying to improve that. Maybe they're trying to reach a certain measurement or uh, for their team to win. That goal, whatever that goal is, drives them to persevere through the unpleasantness of exercise. Now, at least I imagine that exercise is unpleasant. It is when, when I try it. But as is often quoted by many people, I don't think it's just me. No pain, no gain. I believe that most of God's people, those who have truly put their faith in Jesus Christ, for whom he is their only hope in life and death, are unanimous in their desire to be spiritually fit, to be spiritually healthy. They desire to be Christ-like. And if you were to ask them, I think that they would unanimously say that they do want to abound in love for God and love for one another that they want to have the fruit of the Spirit abundant in their lives, that they want to be busy about making disciples, that they want to, 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 to fulfill the role in the church by using the gifts that God has given them, that they want to be Psalm 1 people who, who meditate on God's Word and who delight in it, that they are, want to be people who are devoted to prayer. Now, we know that no saint is going to be perfect until Christ returns. But I think that most people, like most true, true believers, those who have new life through God's Spirit as they've believed in His Son, find that picture appealing. If, if, if they could just take a, a pill and become that, they would say, yes, that's totally what I want, I want to become. And we do wish that there was a quick and easy path towards spiritual maturity. There have always been frauds who promise physical fitness if you purchase their, their snake oil. And we long for a supplement that we could swallow that would tone our spiritual muscles, that would fix our spiritually flabby abs. Well, this morning is about how to become spiritually mature. But there's no snake oil. 
Imagine, if you will, an orchard for a minute. And imagine in this orchard that there are, are some newly planted trees. There also may in this orchard be some empty spots. Spots where, where there had been a dead, unfruitful tree that had been, 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 been uprooted by the farmer. So there's newly planted trees and there's spots where, where one showed that it wasn't really ever alive. But in between and predominantly there are healthy trees. Now these trees aren't, aren't, aren't perfectly symmetrical trees and they're not identical to one another. Really, each tree is kind of gnarly in its own way. But what they have in common in, in this orchard you're imagining is that they are all fulfilling the purpose for which the farmer has planted them. They are all bearing fruit. And imagine these trees. These trees have lots of fruit. Their boughs are bending with the crisp, juicy apples. Their green leaves are fluttering in the wind. And those fruitful tr trees are reflecting well upon the farmer who manages that orchard. We are here this morning, metaphorically, I'm here, you're at home. We are here this morning because we want to become mature, productive, seasoned trees that bring our God glory. We want to be healthy, we want to be fruit-bearing. We want all of those descriptions I said about the fruit of the Spirit and making disciples. I trust by God's grace that that's your desire, your yearning. And that's why James wrote to the first century Christians. It wasn't really clear what kind of trees these Christians, these Christians who were scattered across the Mediterranean world, were going to prove to be. There's evidence of life, but not much uh, but not much ma 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 maturity yet. And as we'll see, James was concerned that among them were those that really were dead, as he describes them, as enemies of God. So James is, is, is looking across this first century orchard of all these newly planted trees. And in a sense, they were all new, new, newly planted because the church was still young. Would they survive the challenging circumstances, the challenging circumstances that accompanied their confession of Christ as they were being persecuted as Christians? Would they survive long enough to become productive, mature Christians? Would they survive long enough to become Christ-like? Now, of course, we know that a true Christian is going to be a growing Christian. It may not be all at once. There may be times where they don't grow. But over the long haul, they're going to become a productive Christian. Were these Christians that he's writing to, these who confess Christ, were they going to become mature Christians? Or were the difficulties that they were going through, would it kill their growth? I want to give a, a, a little background to the book of James. And we'll start with James 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it is impossible to be certain which James wrote this letter. There's, there's, there, there's, there's several James in the New Testament. And the most likely, although we would maybe imagine that, 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 that this was uh, James the Apostle, the, 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 the famous brother of James and John fame. But it's most likely that this James is the son of Joseph and Mary, the half-brother of Jesus. 
Now, James had neither been a disciple nor an early follower of Christ. In fact, John 7, verses 3 through 5, describes the this, this scene between Jesus and, and, and his biological half-brothers. Jesus' brothers come and they challenge Jesus in John 7, verses 3 through 5. His brother said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. You're doing these amazing things. Why don't you go and get some crowds about you? Verse 4, For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Come on, Jesus. If you're really the Messiah, make it known. Verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. James is absent during most of Jesus' earthly ministry. Most noticeably, he's, at, he's absent at the crucifixion of his half-brother. One must wonder, and, and, and the text doesn't say that he's not there, but Jesus uh, commanded one of his disciples, John, to care for his mother Mary. So you have to kind of wonder, well, where were his brothers then? But Jesus wasn't finished with James, and that's good news for you if you have not yet submitted to Jesus Christ as your Lord. Jesus was not finished with his half-brother James. Even though James had rejected his brother as, as the Messiah. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 5 through 7, uh, the Apostle Paul accounts Jesus' appearances after he had risen from the dead. It says, And then he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. So to Cephas is Peter, and then, then to all the twelve apostles. And uh, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now. They are still living, but some have fallen asleep. But then, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 15, and then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Now, now we, we can't be certain that that is, is not James, one of the apostles there, but I think it's, 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 it's pretty good evidence or, or, or a good hypothesis that that's James's brother. Jesus had a plan for his half-brother James to be transformed by his resurrection. One can only wonder what that conversation was, was like and what it would have been like for James to see his, his perfect, sinless half-brother Jesus crucified for his sin and now resurrected Lord standing in front of him. Shocking to think about. In the upcoming years, James grew. He grew in his relationship with Jesus Christ. By, by, by A.D. 44, in Acts 12, 6, 12 17, Peter describes how, uh, how, how, how Peter had, had been released from prison, and he told the other saints we went to first, report these things to James and the brethren. And we know that that James is definitely uh, James the Lord's brother. It is not the apostle because the apostle James had already been killed at this point. In, in, in Galatians 2.9, Paul describes James as a pillar of the church. In Acts 15, and this is in, in A.D. 49, we see James' leadership and his, prom, and, and his prominent voice uh, uh, at, the, at the Jerusalem Council, which met to kind of process which, which, which of the Old Testament laws and, 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 and whether the uh, Gentiles needed to follow those, those Old Testament laws, whether they needed to be circumcised as they became saved. 
And we see in Acts 15, 13, James commanding presence. Remember, this is someone who had rejected Christ. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. And in verse 19, Therefore it is my judgment, James says, that we do not trouble those who are turning to, to God from among the Gentiles. So from someone who, who, who didn't believe in Christ to now someone who is leading the, the, the early church. Now James 1.1 doesn't suggest that James rose to prominence because of his biological relationship to Jesus. In fact, listen how James introduces himself a bondservant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Though his readers probably knew that James was the Lord's brother, even as Paul describes James in Galatians 1.19 as the Lord's brother, that's not how James described himself. James, who had been slow to see the majesty of Jesus, is now Jesus' loyal subject. James's authority comes from his being Jesus's servant and not his sibling. Jesus was James's master. And you children, as you are sitting there listening in your homes this morning, growing up with Jesus will not make Jesus your master. James grew up with Jesus, and he didn't submit to him until he had seen the resurrected Jesus. And that is what you need, is to see Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, clearly revealed in God's word. So for you kids who have grown up in Christian homes, if you want to see this Jesus, if you want to be transformed like James was transformed, I beg of you to beg of God. Say, God, I want to see Jesus too. I want to know this resurrected Jesus. I want to be transformed like James was transformed. Please open my eyes so that I can see Jesus. Because growing up with Jesus, as you all are doing, all the kids who are listening to this this morning, you've grown up with Jesus, but that doesn't make you a Christian. You could grow up in the same household as Jesus and it doesn't make you a Christian. It takes faith that only Jesus can bring. In James 1, verse 1, it continues, To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Now, the most natural reading of this phrase, the twelve tribes, and where, where, where it says to, 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 to those who are dispersed abroad, or more literally, to those uh, 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 who are in the dispersion. Those who are in the dispersion. It reveals that James was writing to Jews. The, 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 the dispersion uh, refers to, to the Jews who had never returned to the promised land, uh, either from the, the Assyrian captivity in 700 BC, approximately, or from the, the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BC. These Jews who, who never returned, they scattered across the, the, the uh, uh, across me, across Mesopotamia, across the, uh, around the Mediterranean Sea, into Asia Minor and, and, and even Europe. They, they, they just stayed where they were. They were the scattered ones who never returned. And we don't know much more about these Jewish Christians to whom James wrote. We really don't know that much about them. We don't even, we can't really even pin down to where the ones lived he was writing to. Perhaps some of these Christians had, 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 had been there at the first Pentecost. 
Perhaps some of these had heard the apostles miraculously speak in the various languages of the dispersion of, of the diaspora. Perhaps they were converts of those early believers who, 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 fled, who fled Jerusalem during the persecution which followed the martyrdom of Stephen. In Acts 11.19 it says, So then those who were scattered or, 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 or dispersed because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to, to Jews alone. Those who had become early believers in Christ when, when persecution started spread out. And maybe those churches that were planted, those Jewish Christians are those same ones that James is writing to here. It was most likely between 44 and, and, and 49 AD that James wrote this letter, which would make it one of the early, it would make it the, 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 the earliest book written in the New Testament. So when you read James, this is the first scripture written after Jesus rose from the dead, which, which gives a unique flavor to it. He wrote to these Jews who had accepted that Christ was the prophesied Messiah, who had placed their hope in the sacrificial death of Jesus on their behalf, these Jews who had repented of Jesus, who had been, been, been baptized. These Jews who were waiting for his return and who are waiting for the reconciliation of the rest of the Jews. In fact, some of them may have still been going to synagogues. Some, some of them have been probably kicked out, but some of them were still meeting with other Jews, trying to convince them that Jesus was the, the Messiah they'd been waiting for. Now, we would, of course, like to know more about these early Jewish Christians, and it's tempting to compile a picture from some of, uh, of the details given. But it's difficult really to say much about them with certainty. There, there, there's evidence that they were both suffering from poverty and from persecution. Like, for example, James 2, verses 6 through 7 reads, Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name, the name of Jesus, by which you have been called? So whether that was Gentiles or other rich Jews who were oppressing these early Christians, responding to poverty and the way that they were to respond is a recurring theme in this book. And as you read through this book, you can see that the lives of these Jewish Christians were not easy. They were suffering people. They were outcast Christians among the already marginalized Jews. They were the outcasts among the outcasts. And making it through this world was tough, but that is not what James is most concerned about as he writes to these suffering Christians. He's most concerned about their responses to the circumstances and not the actual circumstances. He's concerned about what is coming out of them and not what is outside of them. See, for them, simply claiming Christ wasn't enough. It was good that they'd been convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, but were they true Christians is ultimately where this letter is going to push them. These, these confessing Christians needed to obey Jesus and they needed to continue in their allegiance to Jesus. They needed to, to mature. They needed to grow. They needed to become productive. They needed to go from new saplings to really healthy, fruit-bearing trees. And that is what this book is about. is about becoming a mature Christian. In this letter... 
James wrote so that confessing Christians would become, become mature believers though they were facing adverse circumstances. That confessing Christians would become mature believers though they were facing adverse circumstances. Now I'm going to read to you James 1 verses 2 through 4, the passage we'll be focusing on this morning. I just wanted to give some background to you first. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In James 1, verses 2 through 4, we're going to see three mindsets regarding trials we must have if we are going to become mature believers. We're going to see three mindsets regarding trials we must have if we are going to become mature believers. If we want to become those fruitful Christians, those, 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 those Christians who have that evidence of growth, not perfect, but, but, but the full-grown and fruit-bearing, to be a reproducing Christian. We're, we're going to need three mindsets about trials. And the first mindset is, trials are an occasion for joy. Trials are an occasion for joy. And we're going to see that in verse 2. Trials are an occasion for joy. Have you ever had the experience of sharing a hardship you're going through? With, 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 and you share that with one of God's people, only to hear from this well-intentioned brother or sister, them say something like, Rejoice, brother! This is God's will for you! Perhaps you've received that kind of encouragement. Maybe you've, you've heard that instead of sympathy. We can only wonder what James' audience thought as he starts his letter this way. Now, perhaps as you look back, you can embarrassingly admit that, that you've given an, 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 an exhortation like that to someone in the midst of suffering, and it wasn't the right time. James 1 verse 2 is one of those verses often used to justify exhorting someone in this way. Consider all joy, my brother, when you encounter various trials. Isn't it great? But that's not what James means here. And, and, and really, he's, he's saying something to stop you. He, he's pausing you. He's throwing on the emergency brakes as you go at 65 miles an hour. And it looks good in movies. I don't think we should try that, though. Now, I may be, be, be really stereotyping a kind of Christian response that sometimes happens. But doing so gets at the heart of concern of how some of you might use this passage. Or perhaps how some of you fear that I'm going to use this passage this morning. There's saints who use this passage just to kind of say, Smile, God loves you, so buck up! So just, so just put on a happy face. Isn't it great? But James, and we're going to see this, is much more nuanced in both his answer to God's people and his expectation from God's people. And, and, and you're going to find it comforting, even though this verse says what it does. And this is a hard verse. It says what it does, but he's going to help us. So let's first be, be, begin by examining what the verse means. The first command in, in, in these verses is to consider. The verb means to view something in a certain way. The word is used by Paul in Acts 26, verse 2. 
And Paul is, is, is standing be, be, before King Agrippa giving defense of himself. And he says, in regard to all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, which is not great news, right? He's being slandered and lied about. He says, I consider myself, I consider, it's the same verb here, I consider myself fortunate. These circumstances are great, King Agrippa, that I'm about to make my defense be, be, before you today. Paul's choosing to look at the circumstances in a certain way. He says, I consider myself fortunate. It's not a typical take about being dragged into court. Moses had a surprising but similar interpretation in Hebrews 11.26. And this, I think, we can understand even more. He says, considering, the same verb there, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. And He's saying Moses could have, could have stayed, he could have had all those treasures, but he considered something more valuable, and that was suffering shame for Christ. That was a greater value. He considered, he viewed, the, he viewed being with Christ as more valuable than treasure. Paul again uses the, 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 the word consider in, in Philippians 3.8, this time interpreting it as count. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Now previously, Paul had listed everything which he, had, which he used to boast upon, which he had used to rely upon as evidence of his right relationship with Christ. But now he considers them. He counts them as, as loss, as a negative. He, can, he counts them as rubbish. He, he views them in a certain way. So to consider has a sense of interpreting something in an unexpected way. Or, 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 or to go against what it seems. It can be automatic and instinctive. I consider myself fortunate. But it can also take work. It can take a, a willingness to see something differently than your initial response. It can be a choice. Now James says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And really, that various trials comes, uh, 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 comes first, I think. I'm saying that now, but I can't remember, so never mind. Uh, it's, it's, it's not my notes. I don't know if it's true. The word trial, though, is a particularly tricky word to translate. In some contexts, the word can be translated as test, and some trial, as it is here. But the same word can, can be translated as temptation. And this word has, has the idea the circumstances we go through that reveal our character. A trial is a way of getting to know the true someone. And James describes these trials as various. They're of many kinds. By adding the word various, James includes the trials that you face. See, without that word various, you might just be, you might wonder if James only meant one kind of trial. Like maybe we'd be, we, 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 we'd be tempted to think he's talking about persecution or, 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 or the financial problems his audience was going through or health problems or, or, or conflict with one another. All those kinds of things mentioned in James. But by using the word various, we no longer need to guess what kind of trials James meant. James means your trials, all of your trials, your various trials. Now, to be particularly careful with the original Greek here, the saints are commanded to consider in a certain way, not trials, but, but, but occasions. 
He says, when you encounter various trials. Now, I think it, it is fine to count trials as joy, but, 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 but he, he's saying something more here. And that encounter verb is, that is a good way to translate this verb. The word has a sense of something unexpected happening, almost as if something happens by chance. The, the, the word is in Luke 10, verse 30. And it describes the, uh, uh, the, the, the parable of the man who was beaten and left on the side of the road. It says in Luke 10.30, A man was going down from, from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And that word fell is encountered among robbers. He didn't expect it. He wasn't planning on it. He just fell among robbers and they stripped him and beat him. It, it was kind of a chance occurrence. Or, or it's also used in Acts 27 verse 41. But striking a reef where two seas met, they, 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 they ran the vessel ground. It's talking about Paul's, uh, the ship that he was in and that, that the, the, and Paul's shipwreck. But striking, that verb striking, but encountering a reef. They couldn't see it, but they hit it. If we were to limit this, this word trial in any way, and I don't think we should, but it, it, it would be limiting it not by the kind of a test, but by the occasion of the test. These are the particularly difficult tests we face because they came from out of nowhere. Kind of like how this pandemic, we were not expecting this test. We were not planning on these last four, four months. We, we encountered this trial. Or when someone receives a cancer diagnosis, they encounter that. Or when someone is demoted at work, they encounter that. Or when someone suffers a miscarriage, they encounter those trials. These are the kinds of events which lead, leave us wondering, how did we get here? The all before joy. When James says, consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, the all before joy describes the joy. It doesn't mean that we're to look at every aspect of a trial. Consider it all joy. It's not saying we, we should look at our trials with a magnifying glass and, 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 and kind of parse every individual hurt and how much that loss still aches or the pain of sadness or that deep suffering. We're not supposed to look at each of those parts and savor each one of them and say, hmm, isn't this some good pain? Doesn't that suffering make you glad? Aren't you rejoicing right now as you look at that? Instead, he's saying, consider it all, all joy. It's the highest degree of joy. It's the every joy, the greatest joy. It is undiluted joy. It is 100% joy. And with this all joy, James is intensifying the impossibility of this instruction. He, like, 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 I really wondered, why is this all here? Why not just consider it joy? Because he's showing you, this is impossible. He wants you to pause. He wants you to throw on the brakes, and he's pushing us to think. Now, James is not calling on the saints to say, this morning sickness is so good. This uncertainty, this pandemic uncertainty, it's thrilling. This loneliness is great, and I know that there's, there's, the, there's some dear saints in, in, in every church that are like this. They, they can stay this wit, wit with a straight face, and you're thankful for that kind of faith, but I don't think that's what James is talking about here. He, he's not trying to get us, can I please have some more suffering? Jesus didn't say to Mary, upon the death 
of Lazarus. Mary, your brother Lazarus is dead. Doesn't that hurt? Isn't it great? Aren't you joyful? Count all joy, Mary. Instead, John eleven thirty three 33 describes Jesus. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. James, who wrote this, had experienced suffering. He had, I mean, perhaps, he, I don't know if he, what he saw. He knew Stephen had been killed. James, the apostle, had been beheaded, kind of maybe even leaving in the absence that, that, that this James filled in the church. Peter had been imprisoned. No doubt he was one of the saints who was praying for Peter to be released. James is not saying that joy is the only emotion one can experience during trial. He's not even saying it must be your immediate response. But he is saying that we must have this genuine, total joy. So what kind of joy is appropriate when you reflect on your pandemic disappointments? What kind of joy is appropriate when you lose your job? When your family disowns you for your allegiance to Jesus Christ? When you suffer those ongoing physical ailments? It's not glib giddiness. One commentator describes this joy as settled contentment in every situation. And, and, and I'm cautious saying that because the word here, joy, throughout Scripture, I mean, throughout the New Testament, means joy. It's, it's, it's that word when, 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 when the Magi saw the star they were looking for. They had great joy. And, 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 and when the man finds the treasure in the field, he, he has joy. This is a joyful word, but, 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 but I, think, I do think that this description helps. It's a settled contentment in every, sit, every situation. So maybe gladness. Maybe. Uh, 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 another commentator, preacher writes, and, and, and a natural reaction of deep, steady, and undulterated, thankful trust in God. And even as I say that, I can feel a little joy there. Deep steady, and unadulterated, thankful trust in God. It's that kind of joy. This is the joy of knowing that God has a purpose in your trials and a plan in your pain. It is the joy of knowing that your sovereign God is both good and wise. Now, don't worry. We're going to return to this mindset after we finish our next two mindsets. We're, we're, we're not done with it. Because really, James isn't done with it. He's just, he's startling us here. It, it doesn't make sense yet, but I trust by God's grace, it will. So let's go on to our second mindset. The first mindset is that trials are an occasion for joy. And the second mindset is that God has a purpose in my trials. And we see this in verse 3. God has a purpose in my trials. James 1.3 says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. See, James reminds the saints of what they already know to be true. The testing, he says, you know this. The testing of your faith produces endurance. This knowledge was part of their fundamentals of the faith course, of, of, their, of their welcome to the family. When someone comes to Christ, do you make sure that they know that trials are an essential part of their walk? We need to be faithful to disciple our children in that, to, to, to encourage one another with this truth. 
And he says that they know two things about trials. The first thing that they know is we know that the various trials that believers go through is a testing of your faith. God's intends for the trials we encounter, we stumble upon, to demonstrate whether our commitment to him is genuine. Whether we believe his word and whether we trust his promises. Will we be loyal to our Lord when our dreams are demolished? When we wake up in the morning to breathtaking disappointment? Will we be faithful to Christ? Will we be devoted to Christ when we are mocked as fools for our faith in him? When we find out the the extent of the suffering our sovereign God has decreed for our lives, when, when we start realizing how long this wilderness wandering is going to last, will we continue to hope in him? Will your faith continue? And that's why we have trials, so that our faith is revealed. See, the trials you faith are not by chance. They come from the Father's hand. He is the refiner. And he's watching over the temperature of the furnace of our trials. He's refining the impurities in our faith until he sees the reflection of his son in the silver of our faith. The Father's overwatching that process. He's not abandoning it. We know that our, our, our trials are for a purpose. It's the testing of our faith, and it produces endurance. And that's the second thing we know. It it more just then reveals the nature of our faith. It is also productive, that our trials, our testing is productive. As we continue in faith, God is producing something essential in our life, in your life. And that is endurance. Endurance. Endurance can also be translated as steadfastness, as perseverance. It is the ability to continue while facing difficulty. It is to bear up under a heavy load. Now, the ability to endure is only seen in the presence of a test. Someone might have, 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 have tremendous in, 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 in endurance, and, 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 and sometimes you can go to, to, to a state fair, and they have these uh, uh, tests to see how long you can hang on to a bar. And if you can hang on to, to that bar for 100 seconds, you, you might win, win, win $10 or $100. It is this endurance sensor. Sometimes it is a two-minute long tester. Sometimes these, these bars roll and, 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 and making it even harder. But you don't know what your endurance is. You don't know your strength. You don't know your fortitude until you go through that test. Many people find out that they cannot do that test. Endurance is only revealed when it's tested. You only see how long you could hold on when you try. Endurance is, is strengthened through the process of testing. It, it is revealed through the test, but then it's also strengthened. The more you do a test like that, the stronger you become. When we endure through trials, our ability to endure is strengthened. Endurance, as one commentator says, is a steady clinging to the truth. Another describes it as engaged waiting. It's not passive. It's engaged waiting. I'm going to continue on. I'm going to hold on. And yeah, another one says that endurance is faith stretched out. How long can you last? 
And I think that sometimes we can confuse endurance with passivity. See, endurance is also translated often as, as, as steadfastness. Endurance includes, includes our commitment, not just in, in coming to church, but to Christ himself. Our commitment to obey him, our commitment to please him, our commitment to praise God during hardship. Endurance is not just putting up with difficulty. It's not just showing up. It's not just filling out your Christian time card until Jesus comes back. Endurance includes fortitude. It's, 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 it's waiting with style. It's, it's strength and weakness. It's a determination to not give in, to not vent against your Lord. It's staying faithful. Beloved, can you see through your trials, a strengthening of your endurance? Can you hold on to Christ more faithfully than you once could, with less distrust, with more submission, with more hope? Are you becoming an optimistic person in your trials? And that really is an evidence of this kind of endurance. Your view of trials starts changing. This is not just something to suffer through, but something to endure. You know God's goodness in the midst of your trials. But endurance is not an end in itself. Endurance leads to something. It leads to something even more promising. And that's going to lead us to our third mindset. Our first mindset was trials are an occasion for joy. Second mindset is that God has a purpose in my trials. And the third mindset is that trials are God's pathway for maturity. Trials are God's pathway for maturity. Verse 4 says, And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here is the, 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 the second command of this section. The first is consider, and the second command is let. Let endurance have its perfect result. James wants his audience to value endurance, to be on board with God's purpose for endurance. And so James says, let endurance do its job. Your job, endurance, endurance is going to do a work in you. Endurance is powerful. It's able to bring about a, a, a perfect result, a work that is complete and, and, and finished. Endurance is able to achieve its goal. So you have to let it work. So stay in the trial. Don't jump overboard. Now, thankfully, James clarifies for us what this perfect result of endurance is. It sounds good, right? This, this endurance is going to have a perfect result, but it needs to be teased out. And he says, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It's even better than we could have hoped. The word translated perfect is the same word that 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 he just used in verse 4, in, in perfect result, so that you may be perfect. But, 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 but I think that the flavor here, as, as often in the, the, the New Testament, is, is this perfect, the focus is on maturity. It's becoming the person that God is making us. I'm becoming a, a spiritual adult and not a child, not a sapling, but a productive tree. Becoming a person who can resist temptation. Becoming a person who can say no to the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. 
Becoming a, a person who bears the fruit of the Spirit in his life. A person who engages his spiritual gifts in the body for the body's good. A person who fulfills his responsibilities at work and at home and at church and does so without grumbling and complaining. A person who is engaged in God's plan for this world. A person who wants to see God's name glorified around the world. This word mature, this, this kind of person, is further paralleled by, by the word complete. That means what is whole and sound. Well, what's, what's not lacking anything, he says. It's, 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 it's like a car with, 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 with four tires, with four inflated tires, not, not, not three or not one flat tire. It, it, it is one that is sound and whole. There's, 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 with, with this person, there's, there's, there's no malnourishment. There's no developmental problems. His maturity is well-rounded. And to make it even more clear, he says, not lacking in anything. This person is in no way deficient. This, this, this person is like an explorer and, and, and the pockets of his vest and, and the pockets of his cargo pants. They're stuffed with everything he might need to, 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 to fulfill his expedition or to do the job that God is calling us. The perfect and complete person has everything that they need to live a life pleasing to the Lord. You'll be well equipped for usefulness in God's kingdom. This is a person who enjoys obedience who has a clear conscience, a person who meditates on God's law day and night, who humbly comes before him in repentance and confession, a person who fears God, the kind of fear that brings him to God rather than keeps him from God. This is a righteous person, a person who is clinging to Christ's own righteousness, but then who's been transformed by that righteousness. That is the picture of this person. And I know if you are in Jesus Christ, that is the kind of person you want to be. Your heart says, yes, Lord, make that me. This is the tree that has weathered storms, a tree that has deep roots, a tree that is fruitful. The kind of tree that a farmer wants his orchard to be full of. See, endurance is remarkably potent. It is easy to think of Endurance is simply continuing as a Christian or, or, or maintaining your membership. But are you enduring if your life is poisoned with bitterness and resentment? Is that enduring? Are you enduring if your stomach is always in knots and you're always anxious and worried? I'm not saying you're not saved, but are you enduring? Are you enduring if, if really you can't get past life's how you've been disappointed? Are you enduring if you're always thinking about how you deserve better from God? Are you enduring if you're grumbling and complaining? Were the Israelites in the wilderness enduring or just surviving? They just survived for 40 years. Every trial for them was another misery. That's not endurance. The reality is that both you and I know many Christians who have clocked in many hours at church and served in many ways, but they still really aren't, they're not really mature, healthy people. Maybe you are one of those listening, and maybe this is, is, is why you haven't matured. 
How different is it when we endure with the purpose of endurance having its perfect work? Not just when we're holding on, but that we embrace the goal. When we become concerned with God's glory and how we endure, rather than just putting up with our problems, instead of just getting through with our problems, we, we want what God's goal in our problems is. When we view with optimism the, the trial that, that we've begun, knowing that the outcome is going to be our maturity, the outcome is going to be our growth. When we stop dreading bad news, I was just sharing with a brother that, that I, I can just, just dread reading my email sometimes. I'm like, I'm going to get more bad news. That's a little insight into my natural struggles. Pessimism. And while we may not look forward to bad news, we may never be excited about opening our emails. And we may never seek out bad news, and I hope you don't. But those people who endure have been trained by God to expect him to grow us in our current present crisis so it changes the way we view our trials. Do you see it starting to come together here? So how should we respond to trials with enduring for the purpose of maturity? How do we respond to these trials? By looking at their potential. Do you desire to be a mature Christian? Then endure trials. James doesn't say that that, that, that each trial has, has its perfect result, but that, but that we need to be enduring. Oh, I'm sorry. I misread it. I was kind of confused what I was talking about here. James doesn't say that ease has its perfect result, but endurance has its perfect result. Ease doesn't have its perfect result, but endurance does. So how much time do you spend coveting ease? Isn't that how much of our craving for the weekend or craving for the summer or craving vacation or when we get home, how much do our hearts crave ease rather than endurance? See, trials are God's pathway to maturity. And this mindset is essential for those who are going to become fruitful. You, you, we see here what God is going to do in our life through trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So now let's go back to the first command in verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. So if your goal is godliness, if your motive is maturity, then encountering a trial is opportunity to endure and to get the very thing that you desire most, Christ's glory in your, in, in your transformation. This is what we have to look forward to when we embark upon a trial, when we encounter a new trial, when we open our email and see a new trial, when we're driving along the highway and get two flat tires on one side of our car, happened to us recently, we've just encountered a new trial. We know what God is going to do with this trial. He's going to make us mature. And this is why you can do the impossible through Christ Jesus. This is why you can consider the trial, why you can count it something that it's not, why you can consider it as, as, as undiluted joy. As you can regard the unpleasant as a source of pleasure. 
not because we are somehow twisted, not because we like pain, but because we love our Father's pleasure and our becoming like His Son. See, our focus can't be on finding joy in the pain, but on what God is producing in the midst of our pain. Our focus must not be on the suffering, but on how God is sanctifying us. We count it joy, and sometimes we just stay there. We're like, man, this James is crazy. We don't count it joy and stop. We count it joy because it's making you a person like Jesus Christ as you endure. You get what you were saved for. And we get to enjoy it here in this life and not just in eternity when we become perfect and he finishes it. We enjoy because. We count it joy because. We consider it joy because. Because we know what endurance is going to do. This is why we face our trials with optimism and not pessimism. Some of you are going to exercise yet again tomorrow morning. I don't think you look forward to the pain. I, I, I don't really understand you, but I don't think you look forward to the pain. I think that you consider that pain gain as you move closer to your goal, right? You count the pain gain as you move closer to your goal. You may even count the pain joy in anticipation of achieving your gain, your goal. Between Pain and gain is endurance. We count our trials all joy because endurance is God's purpose in our trials and his pathway for our maturity, for our becoming like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Now, Father, uh, we thank you for this time in the book of James and under your Holy Spirit's uh, control, James got this word perfect, and it is sobering for us. It's like starting a day getting hit by a bus, and it's challenging. We thank you, Father, for this challenge, that, that, that we are to consider these various trials as, as all joy because of what you do in our lives through them, Lord. And I pray, Father, that, 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 that there's enough humility and sympathy, even as I to talk about the trials and suffering we have. I know my brothers and sisters this morning, many of them are going through many disappointments and suffering loneliness and suffering much physical suffering, much sadness. Lord, I pray, Father, that, that, that through your word being clearly explained, as I, as I pray it, it is, Lord. And if not, Lord, get through the fog and help it be clear. May they be able to look at this trial they encounter upon or maybe the trials they encounter upon in this upcoming week as opportunity to endure so that their faith be tested, that the genuineness be seen, and that, and that turn into maturity, into Christ-likeness, into us being, being, being healthy people. It's really what the book of James describes is, is the need to be mature Christians, Lord. So help us, Father, to be mature Christians as we endure for those of us who have been stuck for a long time, Lord, I pray that you would bring them hope through this message that, that maybe a, 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 a roadblock to their growth will be removed. And for those who have been enduring and growing, may they be encouraged uh, to persevere and become like Christ even more. In Jesus' name, amen.